Good morning again. That was. Um, thank you, Sean. Are you still in the room? Yeah. Thank you for the for the update. I'm you know I'm really looking forward to Sean sharing with us, and he will. We we spoke about this sharing with us how you know how the trip impacted upon him because it's one thing to to sit and see the the um, the fruit of what um, God is sowing into that ministry uh, through through you guys, uh, it's another thing to be there and to um, experience how God is moving in the hearts and the lives of those people. And it's, it's a life-changing experience, isn't it, Sean? <laughs> you know, so um, uh, he's going to get up and share um, in the not-too-distant future about those things. So how are we? We're well? Um, uh, welcome. Welcome visitors. I, I trust that you'll be blessed this morning as we give ourselves to God's word. Um, we should do that, shouldn't we? Yeah. We, if you are a visitor this morning, are in the book of Romans and we're making our way through. We're in the 10th chapter this morning. So if you want to turn there with me, um, we'll, uh, we'll get back into... As I keep saying, you know, the greatest, what they say is the greatest book within the greatest book. I don't know if everyone agrees with that. No one's, no one's contested it yet. I know when we got to the eighth chapter, I said it was the greatest chapter within the greatest book within the greatest book, and still no one's contested that, so I'm holding fast to that conviction. Did that make any sense to you? <laughs> um, but last week when we were together... Um, um, we're in this uh, parenthetical stage of the book, really. I mean, uh, of course, um, Paul went to great lengths in the opening chapters, uh, bringing, uh, bringing the reality of man's condition in the opening chapters and the, the sinfulness of man and how mankind, all of mankind, um, has fallen short of the glory of God. And then he begins to unfold that wonderful doctrine of justification by faith. And it's all leading us through. He talks about, we go through the struggles of chapter seven, the struggle of the flesh against the spirit and how God is working in people's lives and brings us to that, to that glorious declaration in, in chapter eight or at the end of chapter seven where he cries out, who would deliver me from this body of death? And uh, we enter into, into that wonderful eighth chapter that everybody loves and uh, we begin to talk about God's sovereign hand at work within the lives of his people. Talks about how we have been called and how we have been justified and how we have been glorified. And he begins to speak about the security that that brings in the life of the believer. Begins to say such things like, who can separate us from the love of God? It's that rhetorical statement. And, and it's just to bring that confidence. And so last, that was chapter 8. And last week in chapter 9, we ended into this discussion, of, again, of the sovereignty of God. And um, simply, simply saying, God has chosen, God has predestined individuals, in fact, nations, according to his divine purpose. And... Uh, and God manoeuvred, this is what we looked at last week, God manoeuvred a man named Abraham. And through that man named Abraham, his progeny, he, he, he birthed a nation. And through that nation, uh, God delivered into this world the Savior who is Jesus Christ. And at the closing verses of that ninth chapter, he began to talk about the fact how that Savior became a stumbling block to the Hebrew nation, to the Jewish people. 
So at the, at the end of it, God makes his choices and they will stand. That's what is being established in this, 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 this section here. God makes his choices and they will stand. That's the sovereignty of God. And, and it's a bit, I heard one commentator, and, and I just need to say this to you, I heard one commentator um, speak of the sovereignty of God in the sense of it's a bit of, uh, it's, it's like a family secret. You know, to the believing people. It's like a family secret in that we don't go running around telling the unbelieving world some of those, well, in our initial stages of, of, of trying to bring the gospel, we don't go running around bringing those wonderful truths like in, in the first chapter of Ephesians where we've got all those promises of what God has done, how he has seated us in heavenly places and how God has chosen who will be holy and who will be without blame before him. God has chosen. And they're wonderful passages, aren't they? Passages. That's what that first chapter of Ephesians especially is declaring the sovereignty of God to choose you. To select you, to elect you for eternal life. And they're incredibly comforting to believer, but to believers. But we don't go running around saying to people out there, hey, either you are or you are not. It's decided. It's not a great evangelical tool, is it? To go running to your unbelieving neighbour and say that. And so, but if you read that first chapter of Ephesians, it is so rich for the, with the security of what God has done for us. And that's truth. But as I said, I heard this commentator speak of it years ago. It is a bit of a family secret. You see, when we come to the Lord, we didn't know it, did we? Did you know it? Did you understand the, the reality of God's sovereignty to choose you? You didn't know it. No, all you knew was that you were innately sinful and that Jesus Christ is the answer to your problems, that he was bringing salvation, he was bringing forgiveness, he was bringing a new life to you. That's all you know. But once again, when you accepted Christ, well, this is how it was for me. Sorry, I shouldn't speak on your behalf. But when I accepted Christ, God's forgiveness uh, became a reality to me. And then I discovered something. I discovered that my arrival in the holy family, in the eternal family, I suddenly discovered that my arrival in the family of God was no surprise to him. That's God's sovereignty. Now, if we simply went around telling people the family secret, if we simply went around doing that, then human reasoning would begin to come into play in a fairly predictable way, a fairly, fairly predictable pattern. And you might have had these, well, these discussions, let me say, with people, where people would say, well, if that's the case, then God is the one who is responsible for who I am. He is responsible then for my sin. He is responsible for my unbelief. He is the one that was responsible for all of the things that are now effectively who and what I am. If God is sovereign, if that's the case, if he is the potter and I am the clay, then I am not responsible for who I am today. I Have you had that discussion with people? That's natural human reasoning. But we, of course, and this is where Romans is bringing us, we, of course, cannot apply natural human reasoning to the way that God works and always has worked. Because his ways, we are told, are not our ways, haven't we? 
We're told that his ways are above our ways, beyond our finding out. Yet the fact remains that God is sovereign in his choices. But the Bible also teaches us, and here we go, the Bible also teaches us that there is a human responsibility and that every single one of us is responsible for the choices that we make. Now, I don't, as I said to you last week, pretend to be able to fully reconcile two aspects of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But then again, there's a whole lot about God that I don't pretend to know. And I think we're wise in saying that. I mean, I can't even get my mind around the triune nature of God. Can you? Can you? One God with three distinct personalities. Each is God, yet there is one God, the Bible teaches us. Now, people try to explain that again with logical human reasonings, don't they? You know, we try to work that out with our thinking, but in doing so, here's the problem with this, with human reasoning. In doing so, those things that are unexplainable, inexpressible, unable for us to fully embrace with our own being, what we do is we inevitably surrender or sacrifice one absolute truth for the sake of another. And when it comes to the divinity of Jesus Christ or the divinity of the Holy Spirit, when we begin to look at the nature of God and the personality of God and what God is, that's what happens, isn't it? That's why you have all these cults existing in the world. With human reasoning, they try and explain the nature of God and they sacrifice the divinity of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ just becomes nothing more than a created being and the Holy Spirit just becomes an impersonal force that's moving through the universe. That's the danger. The same applies when it comes to the sovereignty of God as balanced with human responsibility. We can find ourselves in the place of trying to, uh, how do I say it? Trying to embrace one aspect of it, in so doing we deny the other. Either we will be moved towards, I'm not saying we all will, but it is the danger of it. We can move towards the extremes of extreme Calvinism, for example, which holds exclusively to the sovereignty of God. And in the extreme element of that, if that's the case, is God is absolutely sovereign, then I have no say in the matter. And it really doesn't matter what I do because God is going to, or God has chosen me anyway to be saved. So then people, we get to the point where people say, well, there's no real reason to be preaching the gospel. Of course, the second half of this chapter is going to refute that, refute that isn't it? When it talks about those with beautiful feet who bring the gospel to us. But that's where it goes, you see. And people have found themselves in that place where we don't really need to preach the gospel because the irresistible grace of God is going to pull people into the kingdom whether or not they want to or they don't want to. You know, that's the extremes. And and where does that lead? And that leads to the point, well, it doesn't really matter how I live my life. You know, I can be a Christian and I can really do it the way that I want to do it because at the end of the day, who has chosen me? I am chosen. I'm justified. I'm glorified. I can hold the scripture up before you and show you. I'm elect. No, 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 no. Bible doesn't teach us that, does it? It doesn't teach us that. But here's the thing. That's what holding to the sovereignty of God exclusively leads a person. And the same thing happens if we go to the other side of the pendulum and we hold exclusively to 
human responsibility. What happens there? You know what happens there? We just find ourselves in a work-orientated doctrine. We're trying to make our way into the kingdom of God. We're trying to earn his favour over and over again. Either way, we find ourselves not where God wants us to be. And so while I cannot reconcile perfectly within my own reasoning divine sovereignty with human responsibility, yet at the same time, I can't have one without the other. I can't have one without the other. You see, together, if you stop and you think about it, together, intention, they bring balance, don't they? They bring balance. Now, the previous chapter, the Apostle Paul brought into view God's sovereignty. You know, God has chosen the nation Israel, has blessed them with many privileges, he opens up in that chapter. They rejected Jesus Christ. Now, in the 10th chapter, what what Paul is going to do is he's going to bring the reality of the fact that God places the responsibility for Israel's lostness upon their willingness to reject the Messiah. And you know what he doesn't try to do? He He doesn't even begin to explore the difference between the two or justify one against the other. No, What he does is, he opens up the chapter as he did within the previous chapter by revealing his burdened heart for the Jewish people. And he simply says, brethren, if you're there in the 10th chapter, let's get into this. He says, brethren, may uh, my heart desires, you know what I can't do is I can't see, excuse me. He says, brethren, my heart desires and prays to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, please note, please note, this is why I say he doesn't try to justify election over responsibility, but what he does do here, as he continues to pray for Israel, certainly there is an evidence here within his heart that he does not consider that their rejection as being absolutely final or complete, does he? Because why would he be praying for them? Why would he be sharing this incredible burdened heart for them? And that's very important because in light of chapter 11, when we get to chapter 11, of course, that begins to explore the restoration of the nation Israel. So he says this in the second verse, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. He says, you know, hey, look, they've got this incredible zeal for God, the Jewish people. And indeed, The Jewish people were a very, very zealous people about their God, weren't they? And aren't they? I mean, the zeal of the average Orthodox Jew today would put most of us to shame. But the question is this. The question is this. Is zeal really the important issue? For indeed, there are people that no doubt knock upon your door on Saturday morning or during the week that come with great zeal. Isn't that right? I mean, and I remember, this story has never left my, I remember years ago standing in a supermarket and uh, there was this gentleman in front of me being served by this girl behind the count, behind the checkout. And the girl was in, she was, you could see on her face, she was terrified. She was being accosted by this fellow who claimed himself to be a self-appointed prophet of God and he was giving her the gospel according to himself. 
You know, and he was, and I could, this girl, I could see, I could see her. She was looking across his shoulder, straight into my face, saying, Help me. You know, but you know the worst part of this story? This self appointed prophet of God knew me. You know, (laughs) and in my heart, I'm worried about, because I'm weak and scared there, I'm worried about this guy turning around, seeing me, and saying, Hey, now look here, you listen, this guy knows what I'm talking about. That was my fear. Probably wasn't a good fear to have. But the poor girl was being berated by this man. Berated by this man. He had incredible zeal. And this is Paul's point here. Zeal alone is never going to save anybody, is it? Zeal alone. You know you know what it does? This argument of Paul's, it ends all those sentimental arguments that says, I can't believe that such a good, honest, sincere person you know, will be lost. The simple thrust of Paul here is this, sincerity and goodness and honesty or great zeal cannot replace truth. That's the thrust of what he's saying. So read with me these few verses. It says in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have, and again he's talking about the Jewish people, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seek to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So he's saying their zeal is not based in truth. You might say they had a lot of heat, but there's not a lot of light going on there. You know, and here's the thing. You look back at history. Every religious persecution and persecution of Christianity has been at its base a great zeal, much heat, but without a lot of knowledge, with no true light, you know. You know, I watched a a documentary not so long ago, and I'm sure you've seen many of them in your time. I saw one on the Ku Klux Klan not so long ago, you know. And uh, boy, those boys have some zeal, don't they? They have incredible zeal, but they they hate so many people. Think about it. They have this incredible zeal, but they hate anybody that's not white. They hate anybody that is Jewish, and they do it all in the name of... Jesus Christ, don't they? Who they claim lordship. Now, I'm sure that no one here is secretly running around in their bed sheets. I'm sure of that. But here's the thing. Misguided zeal can do a lot of damage to a lot of people. This is Paul's point. Many times, Christians, they become unbalanced with particular issues. And it becomes their thing. And with zeal, they pursue people. With their zeal, they bring condemnation on other people. With their zeal, they crush the spiritual life out of people that are just simply struggling under the weight of their own personal battles against sin. You know. And it's all done again in the name of righteousness, in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul himself... I mean, he can say these things because he himself, before his conversion to Christianity, he had incredible zeal, didn't he? We know the story of the Apostle Paul, you know. He had Christians arrested. He had Christians put to death in the name of righteousness. 
Today, the same thing is happening. Christians are murdered spiritually in the name of zealous, misguided self-righteousness. And it's zeal without knowledge. Now, Israel was ignorant of God's righteousness that is only available through faith in Jesus Christ. They, they had every opportunity, didn't they? They had the great promises and, and so, so, much, uh, so much promise within the word, their word to them about the coming Messiah, but they willfully, when he arrived, stubbornly resisted that truth. And as the passage tells us, were seeking to establish their own righteousness. It's a righteousness based not upon the knowledge of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, but it's based upon their own works. Again, we are talking about, Paul is talking about self-righteousness, your own personal efforts. And today it's still the same, isn't it? Either you, and I know, I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but either you have accepted God's righteousness through faith in, Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ, or we are establishing our own righteousness through the do's and the don'ts, the things that we do and we attribute to our own goodness, our own righteousness. But what Israel failed to see, as most people do today, is that my righteousness, their personal righteousness, in a comparative sense to the righteousness that is accepted by God, which is perfection, is that not right? We've seen all these things through the book of Romans. In a comparative sense, our personal goodness and anything that we can do in our own righteousness, or we go back to Isaiah chapter 64, don't we? And we say that in a comparative sense, they are nothing but filthy rags as compared to that which God wants to impart to those who believe in him. That's why the Apostle Paul in Colossians, sorry, in Philippians, um, when he was talking about who he was and what he's turned his back on and how he counts all of those things of his pre-Christ life as nothing but, and he's talking about all his achievements and all those things as nothing but rubbish or dung, your King James might say. But he says, I want to be found. This is Paul. I want to be found in him. That is in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, again by faith, he says in Philippians chapter 3. You know, you've, you've heard these testimonies over and over again. There was one of one preacher who handed a woman this track in the street. And this woman looked at this track and then looked back at the preacher and gave him this haughty look and said, Sir, you must not know who I am. To which the rep preacher replied, Madam, there is a day of judgment coming when it will not matter who you are. And I know that sounds heavy. Great evangelical. I know that sounds heavy. I think that is in days gone by, but still the truth remains the same, doesn't it? We can parade all our finery and all our position and all our great works proudly before man, but before God, what does he do? Well, in a very true sense, he turns his nose up at it all and he simply says to you, hey, I've got something so much better for you. 
I have got these incredible clothes, if you will, of righteousness to clothe your eternal soul. I have got these for you, but you have to let me put them on you, right? We must be found, this is what Paul teaches us, we must be found in God's righteousness. Why? Did we read verse 4? Why? Because verse 4 tells us, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does that mean? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does it mean? Well, as we have seen, the law, the Ten Commandments, which the Hebrew people turned into 613 commandments, was given to us, was given to that nation as a standard of righteousness given by God What? To show that nation that they cannot attain it unto themselves. It's interesting to me, and it always has been, that when God took Moses up into Sinai, gave him the Ten Commandments, he didn't only give him the Ten Commandments. He came down from Sinai with the Ten Commandments, but he also had the instructions to build the tabernacle and to institute the sacrificial system. Why? Because there was no way that man could keep the law. And the, the sacrificial system was instituted to cover that reality. Sacrifice could be made and it was all to be a picture of who? Of Jesus Christ who would make the once and for all sacrifice for all mankind. That's why we cannot attain to God's righteousness. That's why we come to Galatians chapter 3 and with the Apostle Paul saying the law itself was a schoolmaster designed to bring us to Christ. Therefore, Christ is the end, as he says here, the end of the law to everyone who believes. Rules and regulations can't help you. They can't make you righteous, but Jesus does, doesn't he? This is why we're here today. Jesus changes us. Jesus gives us a new life. Jesus wipes away all of the hurt, all of the agony, all of the anguish, He washes us free of every sin and every transgression and he gives us new life. That new life is in his righteousness. Therefore, he is in a very real sense the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now he goes on to clarify this. For He says, for Moses wrote, verse 5, about the righteousness which is of the law... The man who does those things shall live by them. So according to the law, to be righteous, you had to live by the law. A person must live by them, Moses declared. But the reality is no one ever has. Isn't that right? Well, one. No one save one. And of course, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God. But no man has. So that is a person must live by them and not fail one of them or else they have lost their righteousness. Can you imagine it? This is how people try to live in a legal relationship with God. This is a hypothetical and this is not possible, but can you remember, can you imagine living by keeping the Ten Commandments all of your life? All of your life, strictly holding to them 
And then one day, as an old man, as you look at that rust bucket of a car that you've now had for 35 years sitting in your driveway and you manage to see over the fence and you see your neighbour's brand new shiny vehicle sitting there and in your heart you just go, oh, if only. Guess what you just did? You just broke the 10th commandment. You just coveted your neighbour's donkey is what you just did. Guess what you did? You defiled your righteousness. That's why Jesus went to great lengths in the Sermon on the Mount to tell us that the law is not, is not to be lived practically, but the law is a spiritual thing. That's why he went through that whole teaching about being accepted or being able to come into the kingdom of God. Unless your righteousness, he said, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. And they looked as the scribes and the Pharisees as the most righteous or practically righteous people in the world. And I'm sure that when Jesus said those words to the disciples, they must have thought in their hearts, well, who then can be saved? You know what he then did? He then proceeded to take this big wide door that they had, this big wide door that they saw that opened them to heaven and all that door was all the rules and the regulations that they kept and then he began to close that door before their eyes when he said things like, you have heard it said, right? If a man commits murder... But I say unto you, if you hate your brother, you've already murdered them in your heart. You have heard it said, and with that the door closed. Then you have heard it said, if a man commits adultery. But I say unto you, if you have lusted after another person in your heart, you have already committed adultery in your heart. And he went on and on and on until he get to the end. And he said, therefore, you be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And with that, the door was shut. It was shut on self-righteousness. Nobody can get into heaven based upon the things that they are doing. You've coveted your neighbor's donkey and your righteousness is gone. That's why James tells us. Don't we love James? He just keeps slapping us about the face. We love James, you know. When he said, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offended in one point, he is guilty of it all. That's what Moses was teaching. You cannot be righteous by law. You cannot be pleasing God based upon your own self-righteousness. This is the teaching here. But look at verse 6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Who will say this? You know what he's doing? He's quoting again from the Torah. He's going back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I encourage you to go back and read it to get an understanding of what Paul is saying here. Deuteronomy chapter 30, where, where, where the Lord is giving them his law and his commandments. And he's speaking about, if you will obey them, you will have life. You will live. And so about 11, chapter 11, verses 11 through 14, that area there, he speaks of the commandments being in the people's mouth. It's in their hearts. He's saying, he would say in, in Deuteronomy, he would say, you don't have to seek them in heaven. You don't have to search for my commandments in the seas. No, God says, I have placed them in your mouth. I have placed them in your heart. And what God was saying is, I've not given you anything that's unachievable. 
I've placed them in your mouth. They are close. They are so very, very close. And here Paul is drawing upon Deuteronomy and he's alluding to God's righteousness through faith in Christ. He's saying, you don't have to bring Christ down from heaven. You don't have to pull Christ up out of the abyss. Why? He's saying it's already happened. He's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you have to do by your own efforts to do so, to become righteous, to be saved. Why? Because Christ has done it all. He's done it all. And in a very very real sense, if you are living a works-orientated doctrine according to your own righteousness, You're trying to pull Christ down. You're trying to drag him up. You're trying to work out your own salvation, not through fear and trembling, but by the very things that you do. So what does he say? Let me bring this to an abrupt end. He says, but what does it say? Verse 8. Here it is. The word is near you in your mouth. This is what Moses was saying. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth, we know this, don't we? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. How close is salvation? How close is righteousness? He's saying here, it's close, it's as close as the very confession of your heart. In simple terms, it requires two things here. I acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. That means that Jesus is God. I acknowledge that Jesus is God. He is the supreme power, majesty and authority of the universe. He rules. He rules me. He owns me. And I surrender to that majesty. I surrender to that love. I give him the honor that he deserves. He is my Lord. I surrender to him. Number one. And number two, I believe that God has raised him from the dead. Now these are the two elements of salvation which lead us where? They don't save us, but they're the elements that lead us to confession. It's where forgiveness and acceptance is found. So let me say it again. We see and we believe that Jesus is the Lord of the universe and he is the giver of eternal life. He is the risen saviour of mankind. And believing this, what else can I do? But fall down before him and say to him, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean. Save me. How close is salvation? How close is it? That your next breath is where it is. You know, people come into the church. How many times have you had loved ones to say, oh, I wouldn't come into that place. The walls would fall down. Right? (laughs) Well, people say, oh, I'm so wicked that uh, I'm so wicked. I'm so very far, far from salvation. No, 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 no. Not so. The confession of my mouth, it leaves me, which is really my heart. 
The confession of my heart leads me to salvation. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, if you believe that God has raised him from the dead for your forgiveness, if you understand the atoning work, and that's what it leads us to an understanding of why Christ had to die for us. And God, it's not just standing up and saying a prayer. You know, so often these verses are just held up. If you would just say these words after me. No, 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 no. It's an understanding. It's a knowing. It's your heart. It's your mind. It's coming into an understanding of who God really is and what he genuinely has done for you. And when we do that, this is the glory of it all. God regards my past deeds as if they never happened. That's salvation, isn't it? I love One of the things Chuck Smith said years ago, he says, hey, when you're that close to salvation, it's absolutely folly to be lost. That is a great statement, isn't it? For what does it say? Let me just read these verses and I'll be done. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all whom call upon him For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Scripture says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so I must call upon the name of the Lord and he will save me. And that applies, as it says in those verses there, to every person born into this world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe on him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's a propitiational work of Christ. God so loved who, when, how many? No, the world. The provision is there for all and any who would call upon the name of the Lord that they would be saved. And if you would call upon the name of the Lord and you would accept his forgiveness and be saved, you will discover then that God chose you before the foundations of this world were laid. Isn't that amazing? Because again, Jesus told us in John's gospel that no man comes to me except what? The Father draws me. This is the question that must be settled for every human being. Has God chosen me for eternal life in his glorious presence? And the answer will only ever be realized. And I've got to say this to every single one of you in this room. The answer will only ever be realized when you call upon his name. When you call upon his name, call upon the Lord the creator of heaven and earth. You confess him to be Lord. You believe that God rose him from the dead for your justification, to justify you, to cleanse you, to make you whole, to make you perfect. Though your sins would be red as scarlet, what? They're going to be white as snow, Isaiah told us, you know. Call upon his name. Who was it? It was Harry Ironside. So he's from one side of the camp. He, he's, 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 uh, he's, he's the opposite side of the, of, of the Calvinist camp. He's on the other side. You know, and these two camps argue against one another. But he said one thing really well one day. He said, uh, he said uh, when you get to heaven, you'll get to the door, the pearly gates, and you'll see written on the pearly gates, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you'll enter in because you will have called upon the name of the Lord. You would look back and you'll see on the inside of the... The gates of heaven see the words that say, chosen, 
before the foundations of the world were laid. You know, it's a pretty picture, but it holds the two in balance, doesn't it? It holds the two in balance, you know. We don't want to be extreme on one side or extreme on the other. We want to know that God calls, God chooses, and you and I have a responsibility to respond, every single one of you, to that wonderful saving grace. We've kept you here long enough this morning. God bless you and thank you so much for for gathering and worshipping. I trust and I hope you can hang around and maybe have some fellowship. No, no fellowship, he says. (laughs) He's looking at me going like this. We don't fellowship. (laughs) Are 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 you done? All right. Um, Hey, if you've got any questions, again, I don't promise to have the answers, but I'd love to sit with you, chat with you, pray with you, just as anybody else in this room would love to pray with you. Let's take the opportunity to encourage one another, bless one another, pray with one another. Hey, if you're on the outside of the door looking in and these words have ministered to your heart this morning and you want to know more about this Jesus, this God of heaven who saves people, don't leave without coming to see one of us down the front here, okay? That's the invitation. Call upon his name and be saved. Amen? God bless you. Thank you.